Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the people, the food, the culture, and the history of the state of Israel. Um, Hey, listen, if this is your first time watching, don't forget to hit the like button and the subscribe button so that you are in the loop for all the new videos. Um, If you're listening to us, uh, and you want to take us with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Um, and this uh, this podcast is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel, Modern Hebrew Flashcards. Um, if you want to learn Hebrew or you just want to brush up, we have the system for you. Um, we have th- three different sets right now and we're going all the way up to five and they are available um, on Amazon for Kindle. Now, if you don't have a Kindle, you can download Kindle for your Android, for your uh, laptop, desktop, all of your devices. So not having a Kindle is not an excuse to not use it. Um, Also, uh, we just released our Who is a Jew children's bedtime story um, written by me and illustrated by Dana Korolkova, who is a amazing artist, illustrator who lives in Tel Aviv. Um, And yeah, so um, let's start the show. All right. Hey, welcome back. Um, This is part two of last week we did the uh the the history of the city of Haifa and this episode we do the modern city and I love Haifa it's one of my favorite places in Israel um I love Israel I love it's so weird how such a small country can have so much diversity of flora, people, customs, culture, all of that. Um, and Haifa is unlike any other place um, bodies, uh, in Israel. It's unlike any other place in Israel at all. And I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Now, as you know, when we do the history, part one, we always go up to um, the British Mandate, and then we start with um, the State of Israel. We start with the the Declaration of Independence and um, the war that followed quickly after. But Haifa is a little bit different, and I'm going to uh, I'm just gonna go through my research with you guys and let you guys figure out why it's different on your own. So buckle up, guys. All right, so. Haifa is the third largest city in Israel with a population of almost 300,000 as of 2019. Um, It is one of Israel's primary seaports and is located on Israel's Mediterranean coastline um, on the southern part of 
the Bay of Haifa. Um, it lies about 56 miles north of Tel Aviv and is the major metropolitan regional center for northern Israel. It really is. It's a it's a it's a sprawl. It's great, but it's beautiful as well. Um, not but and it's beautiful as well. Um, the city is a major hub for heavy industry, petroleum refining, and chemical processing, and this has allowed it to become an integral component in Israel's economy. Haifa is also a major tourist destination with its sweeping panoramic views of the Mediterranean from every point in the city. And it's really true. There's nowhere in Haifa that you cannot see um, the bay in the Mediterranean. So let's start with what is called the 1948 Battle of Haifa. In the last episode, we spoke about another Battle of Haifa, which took place in 1918 during World War I against the Ottomans, um, with the brave uh, Indian uh, cavalry attack on Ottoman artillery positions on Mount Carmel. This is different. Um, the city's role in Israel's War of Independence took place just prior to the outbreak of hostilities that resulted from the coordinated invasion by Egyptian, Syrian, Iraqi, and Jordanian forces at the direction of the Arab League on May 15, 1948. So this battle took place just prior to that. On April 21st and the 22nd of 1948, the Battle of Haifa took place. A Haganah operation, the battle was a major event in the final stages of the civil war taking place in mandatory Palestine. On the Mediterranean coast, at the northwestern edge of the Sharon Plain, Haifa was a strategic location that all parties wanted to hold. Um, it was the country's largest deep water port. It sat on a line that led to the Hejaz Railway that went, uh, it was, uh, there was a part of the um, railway that linked up with the railway between Damascus and Medina in Saudi Arabia. Um, and it was home to the Consolidated Refineries Oil Refinery. So there was a lot that... Um, so when the, well, hold on, let me just continue to read and you'll, you'll understand. Um, this meant for the Jewish provisional government and the Haganah, the, the capture of the port of Haifa would be vital if they were re to receive much needed arms and supplies for the upcoming inevitable conflict between the Jewish forces of the proposed state, um, and the surrounding Arab armies. Most importantly, Haifa sat within the outlined area allocated for the Jewish state um, under the 1947 United Nations Partition Plan. So Haifa was within the borders of that partition plan and was part of the nascent, the proposed Jewish state. Um, but you're going to find out that the Arab League didn't really give a shit. So um, in preparation for the outbreak of hostilities on March 17th, 1948, Mohammed bin Hamad al-Huneti, Huneti, Huneti, uh, the commander of the town's Arab militia, directed a convoy that was bringing 15 tons 
of arms and explosives into the into the city in preparation for keeping it out of the hands of the provisional Jewish government. So they were already gearing up to fight. They weren't going to hand over Haifa to the British so that they would hand it over to uh, the Jewish provisional government. This convoy was part of a larger plan to bring a number of armed supply convoys into Haifa. Unfortunately for him, he was killed in an ambush when Jewish forces attacked his convoy. A highly advanced, uh, a highly placed informant uh, for the Haganah provided valuable intelligence um, and allowed for the interception of his convoy and eight others out of a total of 11 Arab arms convoys uh, that attempted to make it into the city. So nine out of 11 were destroyed or captured. So they were, that's a lot of convoys. So one convoy had 15 tons, multiply that by 11. I mean, that's a lot of arms and explosives to fight off a very small uh, Jewish army. So they were gearing up to win against um, against the Haganah. So at the, at the head of all of this uh, prepared Arab resistance was an Arab garrison that was commanded by Captain um, Amin Iz al-Din, which had been appointed by the Arab Liberation Army's uh, military committee on the 27th of March in Damascus. So you already had outside forces going within in, into the Arab community uh, within the Palestinian mandate and arming them for a what they saw as a final conflict against the Jews. Um, in total, there was a force of 2,000 to 3,500, but some say almost up to 5,000 Arab militiamen that needed to be addressed in Haifa if it was to be a part of the new Jewish state. So these are pretty insurmountable odds, all right? So if you take a look at the numbers, um, I'm going to have a sip of coffee. Uh, Peter Madeira and Jay Hats, my two Patreon sponsors, this is for you. Give me one moment. So we are literally looking at a David versus Goliath kind of thing here. So... Sorry, I love that coffee. Mm. And I mean, anywhere from 2,500 to up to 5,000. And and the thing that's frustrating is when you look into the research about this, they're, they're very slick. Whoever's writing this stuff, they're not very clear. They tend to say Arab, but then they'll say Jewish forces. And I am calling it. I, I because you'd have someone I'm not saying that so and so's lying. I am. I totally am. The people who are writing this are being the 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 histories are tending to be wholly disingenuous because they will give an outline of Arab forces and then they will just write that the Haganah went after the Arabs. And they in their head know that they're speaking about Arab forces, Arab militiamen, armed militiamen, uh, the Arab Liberation Army, but they know that the reader might not make that differentiation and might just think that, oh, the Jews were just killing Arabs during the Battle of Haifa. Not true. So I'm going to continue. Um, sorry about that. I ran uh, sometimes about disingenuous academics. So 
The British had previously controlled Haifa and intended to use it as a final embarkation point as they began the evacuation of their troops in early April of 1948. So they were getting ready to leave. The original intentions of the British government had been to evacuate the territory uh, gradually from the south down in Beersheba to the north and to be completely evacuated by mid-May. Um, this was not to be the case, though, because um, fighting in Tiberia on the 18th of April 1948 between Arabs and Jews led to an acceleration of the British timetable for turnover. They just didn't want anything to do with it. The British then let the provisional Jewish government know that they intended, the British intended, um, to evacuate most of Haifa with the exception of the port, and that this evacuation would be completed by the 20th of April. With this brand new information, um, the provisional Jewish government and the Haganah both saw um, this change of plan as an opportunity and quickly prepared itself to attack the Arab militia's forces in the neighborhoods of Wadi Nisnas, Wadi Salib, and Kalisa because they weren't going to wait. They've been fighting these convoys. They've seen the armaments that are coming in. If they don't take the initiative... Jews are the Jews are going to be dead, um, and you know the idea, the concept of never again. Think about it. This is just this is less than a decade from the Shoah. You think they're going to let armed groups just come and slaughter Jews again? No, absolutely not. Um, the Haganah force consisted of the Hish or Haganah field corps, uh, field corps, the Palmach which is the Haganah Strike Force and the Haganah Guard Corps. These Haganah forces um, attacked the Arab militias in Wadi Salib and Wadi Nisnas from Hadar Carmel, which is, uh, which is an area in Haifa, while the bulk of the attack on the Arab militia in Kalisa came from Neve Sha'anan. And the Arab headquarters, just so everyone knows, were in the center of the city near the port and the railway depot. Um, the first attack happened, uh, it was on the Rushmia Bridge area, and this cut off the opportunity for Arab forces to be uh, resupplied or get reinforcements. And then came mortar bombardments by the Haganah on Arab positions. Um, and these bombardments made it difficult for the Arab militias to rally and mount a defense of their positions before finally engaging in the streets as the Haganah pressed the attack. So they were like, boom, 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 we're coming, let's go. And uh, on the after the first day of fighting, the Arab National Committee, this is how effective it was, of Haifa, were prepared to ask for a truce via Major General Hugh Stockwell, and he was the British commanding officer in Haifa. Um, Stockwell agreed to meet with the Haganah and returned 15 minutes later to the Arab League or the Arab Committee members. And unfortunately, the terms proposed by the Haganah, complete disarmament, surrender of weapons, and a curfew were deemed unacceptable by the Arab leadership and fighting continued. Now, during the battle, the Israeli historian Benny Morris notes, um, 
Throughout, the Haganah made effective use of Arabic language broadcasts and loudspeaker vans. Haganah Radio announced that the Day of Judgment had arrived. And to move away from every house and street, from every neighborhood occupied by foreign criminals. They're talking about the British. The Haganah broadcast called on the populace to evacuate the women, the children, and the old immediately and send them to a safe haven. Jewish tactics in the battle were designed to stun and quickly overpower opposition. Demoralization was a primary aim. It was deemed just as important to the outcome as the physical destruction of the Arab units. So they wanted them not just beaten, but demoralized to a point that they they wouldn't even continue to fight. The mortar barrages and the psychological warfare broadcasts and announcements and the tactics employed by the infantry companies advancing from house to house were all geared to this goal. So they were lightning fast press the attack and I'm anyone who wants to put that into a, another context other than a military one has no idea what they're talking about. I was in the infantry and that is your, you know, find the enemy, engage with them and destroy them. That's the mission of the infantry. It's not to police. It's not to take prisoners. Um, you are required if you t if you have casualties on the other side to take prisoners, but your main goal is to kill the enemy, and that's it. If that's too difficult for people to you know understand, then you're living in kind of a, a delusional world. Um, so the second day of fighting saw more Arab militia casualties, an advant and an advantage being held by Haganah forces as they took control of the eastern quarter of the town from Wadi Husamiya Bridge to the to Tel Amal as Arab women, children, and others were evacuated through to the port of Haifa and to other safe areas. So uh, the information that I found was because you get a lot of people who are saying that, you know, the, oh, the Haganah, they murdered women and children, but that's not the case. They had people moving out of the conflict zone because I can't fight if I've got a bunch of civilians in the way. I want to be able to engage with the enemy um, from a military standpoint. That's what I'm saying. I don't personally want to engage with anyone. I'm pretty cool with everyone. So that's just giving you some context. So by this time, uh, Arab forces were suing for a truce and the Jews replied that they were pre prepared to consider it if the Arabs stopped shooting. Put your arms down. Um, during this, during the afternoon, most Arab resistance had ceased in the eastern area, with the exception of a few isolated spots. And the Haganah were in possession of the Shuk as far as the eastern gate. Um, but in other areas of the city, the battle was still raging and Arab casualties were believed to have been considerable. They were taking a lot of casualties. Now, in the early morning or in the early evening, around six o'clock, um, the Arab leaders met to consider the terms laid down and eventually held a joint meeting uh, of the Arabs and the Jews in the town hall to discuss terms for a truce. But due to the inability of the Arab National Committee in Haifa 
to guarantee that no incidents would occur. The Arab de uh, delegation declared that they would be unable to endorse the proposed truce and requested protection for, uh, for the evacuation of Haifa's Arab citizens. So the Haganah and the Jewish provisional government said, you need to stop fighting. You need to lay down your arms. And the Arab uh, committee said, we will do that, but we can't guarantee that there won't be Arabs that do shoot at you. Um, so we request um, to be removed. That's pretty uh, cut and dried. It's their words. Um, the Arab, the, um, who was it? It was the, uh, the Arab National Committee in Haifa said that. They asked for an evacuation of the Arab city, citizens. Um, during a battle, I'm sorry, your commanders are probably going to say, all right, that's fine. Not a problem. They're not looking for inclusion during a battle. They're not looking for um, political correctness for during the battle. Um, there, we can figure this out afterwards. Yeah, but if you do leave, you leave. Boom. That's all there is to it. Um, thus, on April 22nd, 1948, control of the city of Haifa was in the hands of the Carmeli Brigade of the Haganah, commanded by Moshe Carmel, with the British in control of Haifa's port. See, for those of you who don't know me and may have just stumbled onto this, I am very, I, I have a military background. I have my grandfather was in World War One. My grandfather was in World War Two, and my dad was in the Vietnam War. And I was in both the first and the second Gulf War. And on top of that, I was also on a submarine when I was in the Navy. I was in the Navy for six years and the Army for four years. So I see things through the lens of winners and losers. Um, there is a gray war in battle, but the final result is binary. Someone wins and someone loses. And if that's too much for someone to be able to deal with, I apologize. Um, I welcome you to discuss it with me, but that is how I feel. And that's based on, oh gosh, I'm dating myself, 50 years of experience. So there you go. Um, so the banner headlines of the Palestine Post, which is now the Jerusalem Post, um, on the 23rd of April, 1948, announced Haifa, pivotal points fall to Haganah forces in 30-hour battle, and stated that the Haganah crushed all resistance, occupied many major buildings, forcing thousands of Arabs to flee by the only open route, the sea. The report was written up on the 22nd of April, but not printed until the 30th of April, and it is most likely this was done for security reasons. And estimates of the number of Arab casualties kill vary, but one source puts the number at 300. And the reason why I find that to be credible is because of the mortar campaign and the, uh, the lightning-fast attacks that the Haganah used, the demoralization, there was, there were a lot of reports of, um, a lot of reports of, of the Arab Liberation Army, just the militia just dropping their weapons and saying, nah, screw this, we're not doing this. Um, so there you have it. And that is, 
Haifa's major role during that period. One more sip of coffee. Hold on. And from that point, um, I mean, they took part, Haifa took part um, after the establishment of the state in being a part of the war effort against all the different armies that had attacked Israel uh, the day after um, it declared independence. But Haifa largely stayed out of the war, from what I understand. If I'm wrong, hit me up in the comments, talk to me. I can do uh, an addendum video. But now the war's over. Let's move into the modern city of Haifa. Now, following the declaration of Israel as a Jewish state on the 14th of May, 1948, by David Ben-Gurion, um, Haifa became one of the primary gateways for Jewish immigration into Israel. After the war, Jewish immigrants were settled into new neighborhoods such as Kiryat Hayim, Ramot Ramez, Ramot Shaul, Ramat Shaul uh, Kiryat, uh, I got to read this right, Sprinzak, and Kiryat Eliezer. Uh, can you tell I haven't been to some of these neighborhoods? <laughs> Um, Brazion Hospital, which was formerly Rothschild Hospital, and the Central Synagogue in Hadar HaKarmel were both established during the time, during this time. And in 1953, a master plan, got a master plan, was created for transportation and the future architectural layout of Haifa. You, these guys, man. They, they, as soon as that their architectural plans for towns in Israel, they just got to, we got to plan, we got to plan. Um, in 1958, a group of Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, immigrants that had been come as a part of the expulsion of Jews from Arab states following the birth of Israel, um, rioted in the neighborhood of Wadi Salib, and their claim was that the state was discriminating against them, which it was. Um, their demand for uh, their demand was simple: uh, they wanted bread and work, and their efforts were directed at the state's uh, institutions and what they viewed as the Ashkenazi elite in the Labor Party and the Histadrut. Uh, so. I'm actually, I think I should do an episode on that uh, about, well, yeah. So I have to do an episode about the camps that were established um, for Sephardi and Mizrahi Jewish immigrants in the 1950s. I'll do that probably after. That's actually an important part of Israeli history. So I'll do that after I do the 12 City series. Um, Haifa's status as a regional capital declined as Tel Aviv's grew in the third quarter of the 20th century. Um, this decline was exacerbated by the opening of Ashdod as a major shipping port. Tourism also shrank when Israel's Ministry of Tourism placed an emphasis on developing Tiberias as a tourist center for domestic travel. Regardless of this, um, Haifa's popularity as a home hometown uh, maintained itself as the city's population reached 200,000 
by the early 1970s. And mass immigration from the former Soviet Union boosted the population by another 35,000. That's a lot of people. Imagine 35,000 people just sitting there. Um, this era of population boom would also see the dawn of high tech for the Jewish state. Um, as the Matam High Tech Park, the first dedicated high tech park in Israel, opened in Haifa in the 1970s. Now, throughout this time, Wadi Salib, the historic downtown neighborhood where the riots took place, saw a number of its Ottoman buildings demolished. And in the 1990s, a major section of the old city was raised to make way for a new municipal center. So seat of government was built in the 1990s. Um, from 1947, Haifa is at a population of 145,000. Um, by 1961, that population had grown 26% to um, 183,000. And it had grown another 20% in 1972 to 219,500. And in 1995, it had grown to 255,904. And today Haifa is Israel's third largest city with a population of 285,316 and a development plan approved in 2016 hopes to raise the population to 300,000 residents by 2025 and of this population um immigrants from the soviet union constitute 25 percent um according to the israel uh central bureau of statistics and israeli arabs constitute 10 percent with the majority living in wadi Nisnas, Abbas, and in the Halisa neighborhoods. Haifa is often portrayed as a model of Jewish and Arab coexistence, but tensions and hostilities between the two and their respective neighborhoods, um, they do still exist. And between 1994 and 2009, the city saw its population compared to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem in decline due to aging. Uh, young people were moving to the center of the country for education and jobs, uh, while younger families were moving to bedroom communities outside the city. But as a result of new projects designed to improve transportation and infrastructure, Haifa has managed to reverse its population decline. And in, 20, in 2009, it saw positive net immigration into the city for the first time. Uh, in 15 years. So Haifa is growing again. And now, now we're going to talk about all the cool things that are in Haifa and why you should go. So give me a second to have some coffee. We're on the half hour. This should only take us probably about 15, maybe 20 more minutes. This is the stuff that I love to tell you about. I love to give you the history. I love to put it all into perspective and then show you what they've done with that history. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you appreciate it. And I hope you appreciate me for doing it. So hold on just one sec. All right. So first, we're going to start with my favorite thing, sport. So there are basically, basically, 
The main stadium in Haifa is called Sami Ofar Stadium. Um, it was completed in 2014, and it is bum 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 a 30,780 seat stadium. So those 35,000 Soviet Jews could all fill that stadium. Um, the city's two main football clubs are Maccabi Haifa and Hapoel Haifa who both currently play in the Israel Premier League and share that uh, Sami Ofer Stadium as their home pitch. Excuse me, that was a hiccup. Oh, coffee and talking don't go well together. So Maccabi has won 12 Israel uh, Israeli titles, while Hapol Haifa has won only one. So, sorry, Hapoel Haifa. Um, now, Maccabi Haifa also has a professional basketball club that plays in the Israeli Basketball Super League. I love basketball. I live for basketball. Go Heat. Um, and so, this is awesome to me. And they play in the top division. Uh, the team plays at Romema. Am I reading that right? I don't want to sneeze. Sorry. Romema Arena, which seats 5,000. And they also have three other professional basketball teams, um, Maccabi Haifa Women, um, Hapoel Haifa, and Hapoel Haifa Women. So all of the teams have a male team and a female team for their basketball teams. I think they pretty much do that with football too, with soccer. Um but they also have a pro football, like a an American football club. They also have an ice hockey team, and they also host uh, windsurfing championships, and they do all kinds of sport, um, all kinds of sport in Haifa. Haifa is a sports town. Now, uh, I cannot talk about Haifa without talking about um, the Baha'i World Center, and that is the enormous, huge gardens that are found on the slopes of Mount Carmel. Now, they are amazing, and they began... Uh, well, let me see. Hold on. Let me just read this blurb to you. Um, Today, the Terrace Gardens, after the death of Mizra Hussein al-Bahai, devotees secretly brought the remains of his predecessor from Iran to Haifa and built his tomb, uh, the Shrine of the Bab, on the slopes of Mount Carmel. Um, and today the terrace gardens and shrine are an incredibly tranquil and beautiful memorial as well as an immaculate example of garden landscaping. UNESCO has declared them a world heritage site for their cultural value as well as natural beauty. Um, for those of the Baha'i faith, they are also an important place of pilgrimage. Um, and you can go there, you can get tours, you can wander around it. I went there and just walked in and interestingly met the security guard was a girl from California who was a Baha'i who came to do her service as through, I guess you have to do service in the Baha'i faith. Um, and it was there. And these gardens are absolutely amazing. I could describe them, but I'm going to give you guys some homework. You need to go online and look up Haifa Gardens. 
you will thank me. It is beautiful and it is amazing. Um, at the top of, so you have to understand Haifa is all situated on a mountain, um, basically, that looks right into this harbor, the, uh, the Bay of Haifa, that sits on the Bay of Haifa. And uh, at the top is Mount Carmel. And on at its peak, on the western point, is the Stella Maris Carmelite Monastery. And I spoke about this in the history. Um, now, the present Stella Maris Carmelite Monastery was built in 1836 and is noted for its lush frescoes portraying St. Elijah. The interior also contains paintings of scenes from the Ives from the lives of the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and has a cedar figurine of the Virgin known as the Madonna of Mount Carmel. Um, it was founded in, uh, the, the order was founded on Mount Carmel in 10, in 1150 as a hermetic Catholic sect. When the order sided with Napoleon during his battle against the Ottoman Turks in 1799, the Carmelite monasteries were destroyed. Um, in front of the building is the tomb of the French soldiers who were killed during the battle. Afterwards, the monastery was rebuilt, but was again raised in 1821 uh, by the Pasha Vaco, And many people come here simply for the views alone, which stretch across central Haifa below out to the sea. And we're going to talk about these views when we get to another part. Um, from the monastery, a trail leads down the grotto uh, towards what's known as Elijah's cave and visitors. Um, it, it will see what a cave that believers, uh, hold that the prophet Elijah hid here after he killed, uh, after the killing of the priests of Baal. Um, it is an important pilgrimage site for Jews, Muslims, and Christians alike who all hold Elijah in high regard. If you're going to visit, remember to dress modestly to respect the pilgrims who might be visiting the site at the same time. And up until 1948, the site was a mosque. While you're up there, and what goes directly to the cable, uh, to the uh, Stella maris carmelite monastery that's a mouthful is the haifa cable car they have cable cars that go up and down the slopes it's absolutely amazing the haifa cable car is the easiest way to get up the steep hill to the stella maris carmelite monastery and by far the most fun um there is an excellent there are excellent panoramic views over the city and its major points of interest all the way up. And they really are. It's an amazing ride, making this an excellent activity for photographers. Um, even if you're not interested in visiting the monastery itself, uh, the views from the lookout point at the top of the hill across the sprawl of Haifa, of Haifa and out to the Mediterranean are well worth the ride to the summit and one of the loveliest places to walk and see in all of Haifa is the Louis Promenade on Mount Carmel. I will attest to this. Uh, the promenade is conveniently located minutes away from numerous museum shops and several hotels such as the Dan Panorama, the Dan Carmel, and the Knopf Hotel. This pleasantly peaceful promenade 
etched onto the slope of Haifa's mountain is perfect for walks, jogs, runs, and basking in the warm Mediterranean sun with an exceptional view that extends from the city of Haifa to the distant white outcropping that is um, Akko, because you can see all the way across the bay. You literally feel, and I know as an observant Jew, this is cringeworthy for me to say, but you feel like a Greek god sitting on Mount Olympus, just looking down. It's like something out of Clash of Titans. And yeah, I'm going to get some knocks for that comment, but I don't care because if you've ever stood up there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is phenomenal. The Louis Promenade is you could take the train, get in a cab, take the cab up to the Louis Promenade, get back on the train, and go back to wherever you came from, and you would still, it would be well worth the trip. You can't, you, you would be able to say, ah, oh, but we went to the Louis Promenade, but we really didn't do anything. Your eyes, you cannot believe what you're seeing. The sight is so amazing. Um, so, yeah. It's open 24 hours a day. You have, uh, you can see Haifa in the day. You can see Haifa at night. It's well worth it. Um, there is so much to see. There is the Mount Carmel National Park, which has um, caves, and you can go hiking. You have, oh, what else do you have? You have um, the top of Mount Carmel, uh, where there are a bunch of shops up there. Um, which they talk about the hotels, but they don't really go into it. It is amazing at the Haifa's awesome down at the foothills. Um, you have the Ein Chod neighborhood, which is an artist enclave where there are 90 artists who did. So basically what this guy did is this guy went and he went and set up this area for artists an enclave, a retreat for artists. And over time, he worked with the government to get them to recognize it as important to the state. Um, and over 90, there are over 90 uh, galleries and exhibitions in this one little neighborhood in, at the foot of um, Mount Carmel. What else do you have in Haifa? You have Batgalim. Batgalim's awesome. That's where the Rambam Hospital is, but it's also where the Batgalim Beach is, which means um, daughter of the waves in Hebrew. And if I'm wrong about that, let me know. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it translates to daughter of the of the waves. Um, but Batgalim's amazing. There are restaurants, and it's it's chill. It's laid back surfers there windsurfers there um i love it it's one of the greatest places pakalim is also i told you rambam's uh on one end of the neighborhood and also on the other end is the cable cars bakalim so you could go up to the top hop on the cable car go down to bakalim go to the beach and if you want another beach there's another beach called hof hakarmel and that's where the bus station is, uh, and at the bus station is the Azraeli Mall, and that place is enormous. Um, if you want to shop, if you have stuff you have to find, the Az and the Azraeli Mall has it, and it's it's amazing. There's also a lot of restaurants, hotels down there. That's on the southern side, southwestern side of Haifa, um, but Haifa is 
absolutely amazing. Um, it is a, I could spend four episodes. I actually have a video on it that I'm going to link in the description below. And, uh, yeah, so that's the modern city of, oh, wait, there's the, uh, there's the Naval Museum and the Illegal Immigrant Museum that goes all the way back to when, um, the white paper came out and they stopped the British stopped, uh, immigration and into, uh, they stopped the British stopped Jewish immigration into Palestine. So there's a museum to that in Haifa, um, that's on a Navy base where you have to, which has guards outside the museum and the museum's actually locked, but I guess you have to ask for permission. They let you in, but it's so cool um, that they have a museum to that. Um, all right, I'm done. Um, hey, listen, if you like this video, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, um, and hit the notification bell. If you want to, uh, if you want to take my podcast with you you can find me on soundcloud itunes google play stitcher tune in and spotify actually not google play it's google podcasts stitcher tune in and spotify um as i said this uh podcast is brought to you by the 12 cities in israel modern hebrew flashcards if you want to learn hebrew or you want to brush up our flashcards are the way for you to do it um we have Right now we have three sets. Um, they are the Alephet uh, in print and script. We have numbers in Hebrew. If you want to know the world in another language, learn the numbers in that language. Boom. All of a sudden, everything becomes very simple. We also have body and clothing where you give body uh, parts so you can identify yourself by Vrit in Hebrew. Uh, clothing in Hebrew and uh, colors. We also included colors in that because I thought that that would be very important. Um, we have two more coming out. We have the home uh, and we have food, which is going to be great. So get ready. If you do not have, if you want them, they're available on Amazon for Kindle. You can get Kindle on, you don't need a Kindle. It's also a program that you can download for Android, uh, Apple products, uh, for your desktop, laptop, uh, iPhones, everything. I've got it on my tablet, my phone, and my desktop. And I'll put a link for that um, at the bottom as well. Um, yeah, that's it. All right. A Oh, one last thing. Donna Kor Korolkova, my illustrator, and I put out a children's book, Who is a Jew?, um, it's a bedtime story uh, to let your kid know what it means to be Jewish and that it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so, hey, that's also available on Amazon for Kindle. And uh, that's it. All right. Todorva. Leitrot ve. Yalla Shati la perah anishar Kumot
Thank <laughs> you. 